everybody. Welcome to the Frontside Podcast. This is Stephanie Riera. I am a developer here at the Frontside. And with us, we have some very special guests. We have Chris Freeman, who is a former Frontsider. He is a developer at a startup here in town in Austin called Ojo. And I'm going to let Chris introduce Carol Nichols. All right. Hi, everyone. Today, we've got Carol Nichols. Uh, she is involved in a lot of different things related to the Rust programming language. She is on the Rust community team. She is the co-author of the Rust book. She's the co-founder of a Rust consulting company called Integer32, and she's the maintainer of crates.io. How are you doing today, Carol? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us. I have a lot of questions for you. Uh, I'm very interested in Rust, but I am especially interested in some of the stuff you're doing that's kind of ancillary to it. Namely, you decided to go into business using a pretty new programming language that in some ways I think kind of is a little bit niche related to some other things that people might go into business for, like, say, web development. I was hoping maybe you could talk about, like, what is an Azure 32 what led you to starting this business and what kind of consulting work do you find uh, working in something like Rust? Yeah. So right now, Integer32 is my husband and I, Jake Goulding, and we decided to form this company because we really wanted to get paid to work on Rust. We think Rust is really interesting and that it's moving the industry forward and we see a future in Rust. So yeah, as far as we can tell, we are the first Rust-focused consultancy in the world which either makes us trendsetters or really stupid. Um, we're not <laughs> sure about that yet, but we're figuring it out. We consider ourselves pretty qualified to be running a Rust consultancy. As you mentioned, I'm the co-author on the book. I've been working with Rust for a couple of years now. Jake has the most points on Stack Overflow in the Rust tag. Oh, nice. We've got a lot of experience getting to know Rust. We've been watching the development, helping people learn Rust so we're offering a bunch of different services. One is to build a, an MVP or a prototype for Rust so that companies can evaluate whether Rust would be a good fit for their problem without diverting their whole team to be able to learn Rust enough to evaluate it properly. So we've done some prototypes. We're also interested in doing training and pairing. So we have some training things in the works. And we've also gotten some jobs that are adding to open source libraries in Rust. The ecosystem is still being built up, and there's a lot of libraries that do whatever the person who wrote them need them to do, but they're not feature complete. So if someone else just needs you know, that extra feature on some library, they can pay us to add it if they'd like. And one of the things I really want to do with my consultancy is have our proprietary work subsidize our open source work because I really love to get paid for open source stuff. So we have a different rate that we charge for proprietary versus open mm -hmm. source. So we've had a few gigs that are adding stuff to open source libraries. And I love those because we're not only benefiting the company who needs something, but we're benefiting the entire community. So when you say you work on an open source thing, do you mean that like a company that happens to be a consumer of an open source library would pay you to add a feature? Or is it the maintainers of the libraries themselves are coming to you and hiring help? So far, it has been the former. But we have talked to some people about the latter. But open source projects typically don't 
have much funding. So yeah. I think that's a little rarer. But yeah, definitely we're open to companies paying us to add what they need to a library. Has there been any friction there with, you know, like you kind of showing up and saying, hey, a company is paying us to try and add features to your project. Like, do the maintainers ever like push back or is it, are they very happy to just have someone helping? So, yeah, so far, no. They, all the maintainers we worked with have been amazing and grateful. And like, we're not going to come in and like rewrite the whole project. We're going to come in and work with their style and make any modifications they want to be able to incorporate into their library. But as I said, a lot of libraries are gotten to a certain point, And I think the maintainers would like their libraries to become more feature complete, but everyone only has so much time and you don't necessarily know what's useful to people. But this is a very, very strong signal that this library would be useful to someone if only it had this little extra thing. Mm -hmm. I think most maintainers are open to making their libraries more feature complete to be more useful to more people. Yeah, that is a pretty sweet deal from the standpoint of an open source maintainer. Good. It's nice enough when people show up to help at all. It is especially nice when they show up to help and are motivated by money. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. So when it comes to prototyping things with Integer32, like what kind of projects are people coming to you and asking you to prototype in Rust? A lot of them are existing projects that they have in written in something else that they want to either perform better and be safer as opposed to rewriting it in C or C++ to get performance out of it. Sometimes it's even been they want something to interface with other Rust things. We're starting to see projects like that. But yeah, it's mostly they have a hunch that Rust will be good for their projects and solve some problem they're having with their current implementation. So we scope their projects way down to whatever will let them evaluate whether Rust is a good fit or not. And we go with that. Cool. So going from there, that's the question that I have is why Rust? You know, I, I don't know a lot about Rust. And so I'd like to know what would be some of the benefits of using Rust if you're familiar with programming. If you are in web development, like, you know, I'm familiar with Ember, why would I like to use Rust or learn Rust? Sure. Oh, I could talk all day about this. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I really love working with Rust. I feel like it is adding more tools to help me to write better code and taking care of little details that usually I would have to spend a lot of brain power thinking about to get right all the time. But now I can actually concentrate on whatever it is I'm trying to get done and let the compiler take care of those details for me. And the way it's implemented, it happens really fast. So the way I got into Rust was I'm a Rails developer previously to this job. And I spent a lot of time optimizing Rails, looking for places where we were associating too many Ruby objects and memory leaks and SQL queries that were doing N plus one queries. So a, a lot of trying to make Rails go faster. And at some point you can't, like there's only so far you can take Ruby and Rails. So I looked at where I wanted my career to go next and I love making things go faster, but I'm terrified of C. I should be nowhere near production C. You have to spend years learning all the quirks and all the ways that C can go wrong and crash and be insecure. 
And around this time, um, I know you had Steve Klabnick on the show in a previous episode. Steve is from Pittsburgh, where I am. And he came home for Christmas one year and came to a Ruby meetup and was talking about this new language called Rust and how awesome it was. And Steve gets distracted by new awesome things all the time. So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. The next year, he came home for Christmas again and was still talking about how awesome Rust was. So at that point, I was like, okay, there's got to be something to this. At that point, he was writing his book, Rust for Rubyists, which has led into his work on the Rust Programming Language book. And I was like, Rust for Rubyists, that, like, I, can, I can handle this. This is something I can do, I'm capable of. So I started reading his book and submitting corrections and things, which is, again, how I got involved with the Rust Programming Language book. And if you've ever gotten the error undefined method on nil or undefined is not a function in JavaScript. Oh, yeah. Like in production at runtime, like that happens <laughs> all the time, right? That's just normal in Ruby and JavaScript land. Rust prevents those problems at compile time. So there's no null, there's no nil. It's strongly typed, so it checks that you have the thing you think you have before your code even can run. There's no garbage collector, so you don't have memory leaks. There is the system of ownership and borrowing and the borrow checker and lifetimes, which is weird and is tricky to get your head around at first because it's different than any other language. But once you get that, that's the part that enables your code to go faster without needing the garbage collector. And you actually don't have to think about your memory management as much as you would in C where you have to say, please give me some memory. Okay, I'm done with it now. Like you are manually managing your memory, but you don't have to think about it as much because the compiler is thinking about it for you, if that makes sense. Uh, I have a follow-up question kind of related to the fact that Rust is kind of performing at the level of C or C++, but is uh, a lot more friendly in the fact that both you and Steve and I think a lot of other people have come to Rust from like scripting languages, from higher-level languages. And that is the fact that Rust is... Like, I remember I first started paying attention to Rust like right before 1.0 happened. I thought it sounded interesting and wrote it off because it was just insane. And I had only ever done like Python and, and JavaScript and higher level things. And in a relatively short time, it has developed a level of ergonomics that I am envious of, even in the, you know, like, quote unquote, more comfortable languages, things like cargo, things like. The compiler is really great, but now the compiler has like really friendly and informative error messages so that, you know, undefined is not a function, never happens. But when you try to make it happen, it now shows you like, no, 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 on this exact line in this place, this is where you're doing it wrong. But I recently heard, and I'm curious if you know anything about it, that there's also development on like a Rust language service. Kind of like, I guess, TypeScript has, where it's a whole set of tools that you can run kind of under the hood that any editor can plug into so that you you just get this toolbox of, like, things to help you develop in Rust that are all kind of, like, packaged up and handed over, and all you have to do is just hook into it. Have you tried that at all? Are you familiar with that? I have not. I've been watching, but I haven't worked on it. I haven't tried it out yet. I'm excited for the language server because it should... It's going to enable IDEs to do more interesting things. And coming from Ruby, where it's so dynamic that you can't do things like ensure that you've renamed all the places the method is called. 
because Mm -hmm. you can't know that. So like I've read books like Michael Feather's uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code and a lot of the chapters in that talk about leaning on your your IDE on the refactoring tools to do automated refactoring. And RubyMine has a few of those things, but not all of them because it's just impossible. So I'm really looking forward to having real refactoring tools that can let you do automated refactorings and things like that that are possible in other statically typed languages. Yeah. But with Rust in an IDE. So like I haven't used an IDE in years because I haven't found them to be useful. But once the language server is up and running, I'm thinking about going back to an IDE. So <laughs> it's definitely exciting. They have some pretty cool ones right now. Like isn't there one there's one called Clippy, which I love because of the name. Like it takes me back to my Microsoft yeah. Word days. And yeah, I mean, it's just, there's just a lot of very good stuff that they have added that, like, I didn't expect from a quote unquote systems language, but it has definitely benefited from a lot of things that people in the scripting world have learned. Yeah. One of the goals of 2017 for the core team is increasing people's productivity in Rust. So getting people over the learning curve, providing them with tools like the language server and making it easier for people to build things in Rust without having to manage things around Rust. So yeah, just Cargo in itself has made systems programming so much better. Like I see people who develop in C and C++ who really try to minimize the amount of libraries they bring in because that makes your build system so much more complicated and you have to have libraries in the right place and so much more can go wrong. But with Cargo, it's just Cargo install and you have a Cargo lock and a Cargo toml and it manages all your versions and it's it just works. So it's been interesting watching people figure that out and change their opinions on mm-hmm. bringing in dependencies with npm and javascript and bower and ruby gems like we're all used to like oh there's a gem for that let's just pull that in and and go and systems people have been really reluctant to do that but cargo is enabling that to be better and easier which is really exciting to watch but yeah i I want anyone listening to this who thinks oh i can't do system programming i was too hard no you totally can you can do rust rust is going to let you do this. And that's why Rust is really exciting because it's enabling a whole new group of people to get into the systems programming space where things need to be optimized and faster and letting people build these sorts of things without having the programs be vulnerable to crashes and security bugs and things like that. So it's really, really exciting. Very cool. So I'm curious in Rust, if there's uh, an error how would you know that there's an error? Is the you know is the whole thing going to stop? Is it going to break? Do you get a useful stack trace? What would I expect to see? So a lot of the errors in Rust are at compile time. So like you can't even it won't even let you try to run your code if you have certain kinds of problems. And they tried to move as much as possible into that compile time space. There are always going to be things that you can't catch a compile time, like the user enters a number that's too big for whatever you're trying to do. So that's still going to be a runtime error because we can't possibly know what a user is going to put in when you're compiling. So they've done a lot of work on the compiler errors, as Chris was talking about, to make them friendlier and point, here's where your error is, here's why it's happening, here's a hint as to how you might want to fix it. And 
this has been really great. And I was helping out at a, a volunteering at a local code school with students just starting Ruby. And I'm used to Ruby's error messages by now, but they were just getting started and, you know, getting all sorts of errors. And I was like, wow, these error messages are <laughs> not helpful at all. And I forgot how bad that is and how confusing it can be for a beginner to just think you understand, think you have got it working, and then you go and run the code, and it's just like, you know, string is not a symbol <laughs> or whatever. Or just like the worst is when you forget to close a block, mm. and it's just like expected to see K end got end of file instead, and it's just this like not helpful at <laughs> all. And, and I was just like apologizing the whole time. I'm like, I'm sorry. This is telling you that you need to write end at the end of the file, but it's not telling you that in any way you could possibly know that. So that made me appreciate that much more all the work that's gone into Rust error messages that are really trying to help. Some people talk about, especially the borrow checker, fighting the borrow checker. Like they're not used to having a compiler tell them their code is wrong so often. So people talk about fighting the borrow checker a lot, but it's it's not trying to fight with you. It's not trying to make you feel bad about your code. It's trying to help you make your code better and prevent errors that might happen at runtime by catching them earlier. And I actually have a, a little project called Rustlings that is a repo full of little snippets of Rust that intentionally don't compile. Like you run them and you get an error message right away. And your job is to read the error message and learn how to fix it. Because when I was starting out, I was really frustrated because I, I was trying to do something and I would get an error message. And that would like, I would have to stop whatever I was doing to deal with the error message. I was like, if I could just get some practice just dealing with the error messages and learning how to fix them so that when I'm trying to do something else, I already have experience fixing that kind of error. So that's how that project came to be. And people have found that useful. I haven't had much time to work on it lately, but it could definitely use more examples because I think people are used to error messages not helping. People are used to backtraces that are really long and don't say anything useful. So sometimes you don't stop and read and think. But the Rust error messages are really trying to help you. And oftentimes they are telling you exactly what you need to do to change the code to work. So I think getting practice, seeing the compiler as more of a pair who's trying to help you and not someone who's trying to like reject all your code is a different mindset that I don't think people are used to, but I think is really useful. That's excellent. I was going to ask you if, uh, if there were any resources uh, or any repos to check out for someone who is interested in getting into Rust. It's funny, last night I was poking around with Python and there's something similar to uh, Rustlings. Uh, it's called Python Coins. And it's basically like what you're already familiar if you do web development, you want to get your test to pass. So it, it'll tell you, you need to think about this one or you need to meditate on this. And then you, you yeah. try to get it to pass. And then it says you have reached enlightenment or you have not yet reached enlightenment. And, you know, you you have to like sit there and think about it and then run it again. And, you know, but it's very useful and trying to get started with language in a way that you are already sort of familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely gotten inspiration from the Koans projects that have existed in other languages. There's also an exorcism track for Rust that people have found really useful. Nice. And of course, I'm working with Steve Klabnik on the Rust programming language book, 
we're rewriting the whole thing. So there's an existing version that if you go to like the Rust documentation and click on book, you'll get the existing version, which is complete, but the new version is going to be way better. Like, especially with the explanations of ownership and borrowing, people have said that, that the new version is way, way better than the old version. And someone even made the analogy of doing medical research and you, you see that the trial case is doing so much better than the placebo case that it's not ethical to continue the trial. <laughs> it's more ethical to like stop the trial and, and use the new thing because it's helping so many people. So someone was like, you need to replace the, the old book with the new book right now because it's so much better. But it's, the new book isn't complete yet. So the new book is in a different repo, which we can put the show notes. So I'd recommend starting with the new book and then like working back and forth with the old book once you run out of content. But we're getting closer all the time. So hopefully that should be done and printed by No Starch sometime in 2017. Whoa, it's being printed by No Starch? Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that. Congratulations. I thought Steve mentioned that on the last one. He may have, but I just... He talked about it a long time ago, and I thought he always meant the old one. I didn't realize that... I guess, how long have they been rewriting the Rust book for? Oh, it's been a while. Longer than I knew about then, probably. <laughs> it's kind of like software. Yeah. It's more work than you think it's going to be, and estimating... <laughs> it's going to be done when it's done. I Steve kept telling people, oh yeah, it's going to be out on this time, and I'm like, Steve, there's no way... It is not getting done by then. So I'm now he's not allowed to say <laughs> when it's going to be done. Nice. I'm really grateful to Steve for this opportunity because I don't think I would have written a book on my own. And I'm learning a whole lot about the process of writing a book. And it turns out there's a lot of editing, a lot of back and forth, a lot of trying to build a narrative through this long stretch of text so that you're building on top of what you've already covered and not introducing things that aren't mentioned. It's a lot of work and I'm learning a lot. And I have no idea when it's going to be done because <laughs> I think there's more work that I still don't know about coming as we get closer to going to print. So yeah, it's definitely one of those things that you can't make agile Yeah, because you've got to put it on paper that costs money and it's going to be around a long time at some point. So it's definitely a different kind of working than I'm used to with software. Although I have to say, I, I clicked around the new, I think this is the new version, rustling.github.io slash book. That's Correct. the new one? That's the new version. Yeah. Like there is a lot here. Yeah. It looks like like it's not quite what I would have expected to see hearing like it's not done yet. Uh, like I've been clicking links and I've yet to find one that says like to do. I think we're currently on, I think 15 through 20 are not, are like outlines. Oh, okay. Right now. Okay. We're maybe three quarters nice. through with the content, but then there's, we have to go through visions and editing and copy editing and. Yeah. Looking at the headings, it looks... Uh, I was a big fan of the first Rust book, but this does have a lot of... I, I can already see it calling out things that I wish had been hit on more specifically uh, in the original book. Like, there's a lot of, of good-looking stuff here, so I'm excited about good. about this. Good. I'm going to have to go read this thing. I'm excited for people to read it. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, earlier you were talking about one of the things that is really nice about the Rust tooling is that Cargo makes it really easy to bring in dependencies. 
And I happen to know that you are recently, I believe, the maintainer of Crates.io, which is where all of Cargo's uh, crates, which are their libraries, are hosted. Is that correct? That is correct. I have commit bid on Crates.io now, which is really exciting. Um, so Crates.io is like Ruby Gems or NPM. Where it's the site where people publish their libraries and you can go and search for a library for what you need. And as part of the Rust 2017 goals, we want to make it easier for people to find high quality libraries that do the things they needed to do. So I've been doing some work on adding badges and categories, and we're working through Rust makes major decisions on on the language and on things through an RFC process, which I think Ember is doing now too. Mm-hmm. I forget which way we stole that. Did we steal it from Ember or did you steal it from us? I can't remember. If I remember right, I think Rust, I could be wrong, Twitter, but I think <laughs> that, uh, I think Ember did it first, Rust borrowed it, and then added the how do we teach this section, and then I think Ember yes. took that back and added it to their RFCs. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that section. Now, so when you propose a change to the language you have to go through this RFC process where you write up what you want to change, why you want to change it, any downsides, any alternative designs. And then the community talks about it and makes comments and and revise it and things like that. So now there's a new section that just got added. That's how do we teach this? And before something can be stabilized in the language, you have to document it, which this is still kind of starting to take effect, but I'm super excited about it because like people can't, use something unless they know how to use it. And right now, Steve's the only person getting paid full time to work on the documentation. And I need him to write the book. So (laughs) I'm excited that more people will be thinking about documentation and thinking about how to help people use their new features. Anyway, um, I have an RFC about how to rank crates within a category that we're trying to work through some automated ways we can recommend different crates for different purposes. So I'm working through that with the community to try and figure out how to best recommend crates in different circumstances. So Crates.io is written in Rust and it performs really well. I just got added to the Heroku thing so you can deploy it too. And looking at the analytics and the response times for it is just like the Ruby apps I work on would be thrilled to have <laughs> to have these stats. So the back end is Rust, the front end is Ember, and Locks, who is an Ember person, is also interested in Rust, and he's really pushing for, he thinks Rust on the back end and Ember on the front end like work really well together. So he's, he's always trying to figure out ways that, that we can work together. And Crates.io is an existing project that I'm still learning Ember. I'm still, there's lots of words I don't really understand about like components and routers. <laughs> and whew, I would love Ember help on Crates.io. So I'm starting to like pull out issues that would be good first time issues or, or are more Ember focused or that I have some idea of how to fix that I could help someone fix. So I'm starting to tag those things with has mentor on our, in our labels. So I love for people to come check out issues on Crates.io who know JavaScript, know Ember and might want to get into Rust because there are definitely some issues that need a little bit of front end, a little bit of back end. So it might be a good way for people to get into Rust. Very cool. I am personally very interested in that and will likely hit you up. But I'm sure many of our listeners will as well, because I think we have a lot of of, uh, Ember-friendly listeners. So look Carol up, because it sounds like she could use some help. 
I actually, I'm curious. So the back end, I know that recently, like pretty recently, Rust has kind of gone through this period of, uh, it looks like kind of explosion in terms of Rust as a web language. There have been a number of different things that have come out pretty recently for like a web framework in Rust, or there's that Tokyo thing. I know mm-hmm. Diesel is now, Diesel is like the ORM for Rust and talking to databases, and it looks like it's about to hit 1.0, and there's a lot of stuff happening. So I'm curious, like, what are you using to write the back end? Uh, I mean, I know you're using Rust, but are you, are you using one of these frameworky things, or have you kind of rolled your own, or what? how's that work right now? Yeah, so Credit.io is like one of the first web apps that has been written in Rust. So it's actually, if you look at the backend code, you'll see like SQL being built by hand. It's going through the Rust Postgres library. So it has SQL injection protection and all the things are escaped. So don't worry about that. But there's still like SQL in with the Rust code. So it's not using an ORM yet. I'm going to have to look up the exact, there is a, a library that it's using that I'm I'm blanking on the name of it for, but it's very low level. It's just like, lets you send HTTP requests and lets you respond to HTTP. Um, it's not using, we're in kind of a uh, Cambrian explosion period with Rust web frameworks. There's a lot of different ones. One I'm excited about that I haven't gotten to try out yet is Rocket. Yeah, that one That was cool. just released. And the thing I love about Rocket is that everyone's really excited about it because it came out, it was announced, and they have an awesome website with lots of awesome docs. So that should be a lesson to any open source project that's launching is like, if you want to get excitement about it, you've got to launch with docs. Yeah. That will help so much. But yeah, there's a lot of different frameworks happening. They're all kind of, they're still a little um, trilobites and little animals that, you know, can't walk on land on their own quite (laughs) yet. So there's no, there's still no rails. There's like the pieces of rails. There's diesel, which would be like active record. Mm -hmm. There's nickel and pencil and iron and rocket. And Tokyo is the async framework that is getting more and more stable by the day. Uh, We got to try it out on a project recently and it's, it's pretty fun. I still I'm working on wrapping my head around promises and futures and working in that way. But I think that as that stabilizes and people use that, that is going to cause like another explosion of libraries that enable really fast but safe web backend stuff, which I think is really exciting. So if you're looking for the Rails experience of like being able to plug things together and nicely, you know, just declare a few things and then it all if it works, not quite there yet. But if it excites you to try out new things and figure out the best ways to do the things you want to do in Rust, like this is a great time to jump in and help. Yeah, I will say the Rocket website is beautiful. And it even has these sections, like it has like a templating section, a testing library section, a section on mm-hmm. stream. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, yeah, the, this is very exciting. It really looks like as the closest thing to a like rail style web framework that I've seen in Rust so far. So yeah, people should definitely check this stuff out. I'm curious, is there, I know Lox is really uh, interested in Rust and Ember, which doesn't surprise me because Lox is really interested in Ember in general, which I think is awesome. <laughs> but is, is there anything specific about like working with Rust and Ember together that seems especially well suited or even like some gotchas that you guys have run into? One of the things I'm thinking of is like Ember is really big into the JSON API spec. And I don't know if Rust has a JSON API library for 
serializing things in that format? Is that like something you guys had to tackle at all? Or There might be. I'm not sure. Crates.io is using the REST API adapter okay. for Ember. So we might not be keeping up with the latest of Ember. Gotcha. But I know there are people who who want them to interface even better with each other. And actually, like that's an interesting thing. Both Ember and Rust are on this the six week release trains mm-hmm. sort of thing. So the way P- Rust people say it, I don't know if Ember people do is uh, stability without stagnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're both changing, but not I don't, well, Rust has backwards compatibility guarantees. So like your, the code you wrote with Rust 1.0 is still going to compile today. You might have some warnings and there's probably new cooler stuff that you could switch to, but it's still going to compile. And I'm not sure about Ember's upgrade path things. Someone just sent in a pull request that we merged a few days ago to upgrade us from two Ember point versions. And there were a couple of things that like changed and we weren't doing quite right and we had to fix. So it's been interesting to kind of fit together, keep both of those sides updated and upgraded and continuing on using the best things. But I think they have similar philosophies around making things better all the time. Yeah, the the whole like stable upgrade path and backwards compatibility guarantees uh, is definitely mirrored uh, on the Ember side of things. So... I can see that being a very kind of comforting place to be, knowing that both your front front end and your back end are not going to suddenly just break on you one day because some new feature came out that like breaks your router or something. That's very cool. So one other thing that I know you're involved in, you're involved in a lot of things when it yeah. comes to Rust. It's very cool. But you also run or co-run a conference, right? Rust Belt Rust? Yeah. Um, we had our first year uh, this past year in 2016. In Pittsburgh, I ran Steel City Ruby before then. So I love running conferences and I love having them near me. One, because it's convenient and I get to trick all my friends into coming to visit me. But two, because there's a lot of tech stuff happening in the Rust Belt and places that aren't San Francisco or uh, New York. And people don't necessarily know about that. And the people who live here don't necessarily have the opportunities to travel as easy to conferences. So I started to start Rust Belt Rust, one, because of the pun opportunity. And one of our speakers drew a little bar graph. There were three conferences last year. There was Rust Fest in Europe, which uh, has, you know, one amount of Rust. There was RustConf, the official Rust conference in Portland that has that amount of Rust. And then Rust Belt Rust has double the amount of Rust in its name uh, <laughs> than the other conferences. So we're the rustiest <laughs> Rust conference. And we're going to be doing it again in 2017. We're going to move it to a different Rust Belt city. I'm not going to say which one yet, but we're closing in on a date in a venue in a Rust Belt city. So watch out for an announcement on that. But it was a lot of fun. We had a day of workshops and then a day of single track talks and a lot of time for conversation. And it was really fun to a lot of a bunch of the core team members came out. And it was fun talking with a friend of mine who was trying out something with Tokyo and Tokyo was even this was in uh, October. So Tokyo was still working towards their their first like big release. And um, he was trying to do something with Tokyo. And I was I looked over and I saw Carl Lurch Alex Crichton and Aaron Turan standing together talking like 30 feet from us. And I was like, if only, you know, the three people working on Tokyo were nearby to answer <laughs> your question. 
Um, so yeah, he just walked over and talked about Tokyo with them. And so I love getting people together to talk to other people working with things, talk to the people who are working on the things you're using and meeting the people behind the names on the internet. So I love running conferences and having events like that. So Carol, you have a Rust consultancy called Integer 32. How is that going? It's going pretty well. We're learning a lot. One of the reasons I wanted to start it is because I felt like I wasn't learning more in my job, in my Rails job. I felt like I had kind of topped out with that knowledge. Um, so starting a business, I get to learn a lot of stuff like sales and marketing and taxes and <laughs> invoices. And sometimes I even get to program a little. <laughs> We're still learning how to effectively find our target customers. We do have availability if anyone listening is interested in hiring some Rust experts. And right now I'm trying to figure out, you know, when can we bring more people on the team? I'm trying to decide if we can have an intern for the summer, which would be fun. So yeah, it's, it's going pretty well. It's been a slow build, but we're okay. We're lucky enough to have savings and be able to spend some time building our business, but it's been really gratifying to feel like I'm in charge of my destiny somewhat, as opposed to the whims of a company. And if I were interested in some Rust consulting, what would be the best way to reach you? We have a website at integer32.com and a contact form on there. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Carol. It was a pleasure. I feel like I learned a lot about Rust. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all, that's it from us. Thank you so much for tuning in. Till next time, bye-bye.